lovely listeners. Before we jump into our regular episode, we wanted to just share with you a quick little interview that Marcy was able to grab earlier this month when she was at the J Street conference with their awesome rabbinic intern, student rabbi Jessica Jacobs. So here it is. We hope you enjoy it. And then we'll pop you right into the regular episode with our guest, Rabbi Mary Zaymore. We're so excited for you to hear all of it. I recently had the privilege of attending the J Street Conference in Washington, D.C., which was entitled Rise to the Moment. And there were over 4,000 people present from all over the world, really, who were there to support J Street's platform of being pro-Israel, pro-peace, pro-two-state solution. And it was really awesome because a number of the Democratic candidates for president were there, as well as a number of members of the Knesset and other important figures in the discussion of how to bring about Middle East piece. So inspiring. And I had a chance to speak with the rabbinic intern who's currently working with J Street named Jessica Jacobs. So I'm really excited to be sitting here with Jessica Jacobs, who's a current HUC rabbinical student, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Jessica Jacobs. I'm a current rabbinical and nonprofit student at HUC Los Angeles, and I have the incredible privilege of being J Street's first ever rabbinical fellow. So what that what is that like creating this position from scratch? You know, it's really funny. Um, I don't think I realized the weight of it until this conference, actually. But it's been such a joy because I've been given so much creative freedom and I've come to realize so many different interesting spaces where J Street has yet to explore its work. One of those is with seminary students. And so we've really had the opportunity to start to build that out and see what that experience looks like and how do you take the experience of being a seminary student and the transformation into being clergy and um, move them along a J Street pipeline. So given the fact that J Street tends to be a little controversial in synagogue life and in rabbinic life, what made you feel like this was the right internship for you? Yeah, so I think I definitely had a little bit of a moment of fear when I was offered the position at J Street and I thought to myself, is this something that I want to put on my resume? I'm still at the beginning stages of my student career and what will this say about me? And I came to realize that first of all, this is a position that's being offered to me through my institution, HUC, who supports me in this position. I feel really lucky to be a part of a movement where the president of the reform movement uses the word occupation. And so while there is a lot of controversy, I still feel like I have a lot of support in this process. And at the same time, I strongly believe in the values of J Street. I strongly believe in a two-state solution. I am a pro-Israel, pro-peace American. I realized that I have the opportunity to state my values very early on in my career as a student and that when I enter into the rabbinate I can say 
this is who I've been and this is who I'm going to continue to be as a Jewish leader. And I stand with J Street and I will continue to stand with J Street. I realized that um, being part of this movement and all of the rabbis and cantors who are on the rabbinical cabinet, it means that I get to look around and say, like, these are my colleagues and we all stand together in this. Um, and I feel an immense amount of joy and being able to partner with, with these folks. So what's been the one or two most exciting things you've had a chance to do so far in your internship? Well, honestly, there are just moments when I get to meet rabbis who I have admired for so long and whose names I know so well and I get to just sit down and have honest conversations with them about their fears and their attempts at courageous leadership what it is that they're trying to do to change the conversation about Israel-Palestine and their congregations and their communities and um, just having the opportunity to have those one-on-one conversations is really beautiful we also just ran the first ever J Street and Trua Shabbaton for seminary students we had 22 students from 6 different seminaries come and join together to talk about what it means to be future Jewish clergy who care about this issue. And we got to learn with incredible folks like Rabbi David Teutsch and Jill Jacobs, who came and spent a lot of time with us thinking through who it is that we want to be and and how we can stake our claim, how we can have these conversations from a Jewish place. And that was just really beautiful. That's awesome. So in a meta kind of way, how's rabbinical school been for you? How's the rabbinical journey? Listen, there's so many ups and downs in the rabbinical school journey. So many emotions, um, especially just getting back from my year in Israel and now starting in my program in Los Angeles. But I would say on the whole, I look around every day at my fellow students and I get to see people who are excited and passionate about Judaism through the moments of like difficult homework and not sleeping and having to deal with internships and pulpits and lots of things that we're doing. I'm still always, always happy to to be in rabbinical school. And that's a really good thing because that means that I know that I'm in the right place. I feel like it's given me the opportunity to, someone who had a little bit of a career before this, to take a step back and be a student and really focus on learning. Being able to just learn for the sake of learning for five years is like a really, really incredible thing. And um, so I'm trying not to take that for granted. It's such a gift to just study what you love. So do you mind taking a couple of minutes to tell us about how you chose to become a rabbi? Like what led you down this path? Sure, sure. I think that I probably thought about being a rabbi for the first time when I was like 10 or 12. Um, I'm one of those weird people who just from childhood knew that this was something that was important or interesting to me. As a kid, I always really gravitated towards rabbis. I would like, we had a lot of rabbi friends in our family and I would make them like sit next to me at dinner so I could ask them a million questions. And I think it was because they were always the people who gave me the space to ask questions and um, often told me that they didn't have all the answers. Whereas I feel like a lot of times other adults were like, yeah, we're grownups and we know everything. And, and these folks were like, Actually, even though people think we know everything, we don't, and we're still learning. And that was always really impressive to me. Um, And I tried really hard to avoid the rabbinical route at different points in my career. I studied social work, and I went to work at Hillel, and I thought, okay, I can be a Jewish professional in other ways. But um, I just had a moment where I realized this is something I've thought about, you know, since childhood, and these are people who I admire. I want to be someone who other people admire, and I want to be someone who can teach Torah and can teach others to be courageous as Jews. The best way for me to do that 
is to be a rabbi, uh, whatever that means, congregational rabbi, educate like in an education setting, it doesn't matter. Being able to learn as a rabbi and take on the title of rabbi means something, and I, I think I reached a point where I realized that I was I was ready to, to take that on for myself. That's awesome. Well, it's going to be so exciting to see where you go in your rabbinate and, you know, where that path continues taking you. You've got a whole family of women rabbis supporting you and lifting you up and encouraging you, and we're all here whenever you need anything along the way. So can't wait to call you a colleague. Awesome. Thank you so much. Honestly, being able to look around me and see so many women, my class is actually mostly women, and that is one of the most exciting parts about about my rabbinical school experience is that like, there's a lot of strong, badass women around me who are going to be incredible colleagues. So thank you so much for being one of those women, and I can't wait to, to join this group of, of awesome people. Yay! Thank you, Jessica! Thanks. <laughs> So welcome, everyone, to another episode of Women Rabbis Talk. We are so excited that you could join us today. I am Rabbi Marcy Bellows, and with me is Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. And we are so honored and delighted to also welcome our special guest this episode, Rabbi Mary Zamor, who we will be learning much more about a little bit later on. Marcy, what are we thinking about this week? Well, Emma, it's interesting that you asked. Lately in Torah study, we have this wonderful Torah study group on Saturday mornings called the Holy Scrollers. And there are people in the group who have been studying together for 20 years. There are people in the group who this is their very first year encountering Torah. And since I've been there, this is the conclusion of my third year at this congregation. I've added a different lens to our study. So one year we did Haftarah, one year we did Midrash, this year we're doing Rashi and Rambam. And, you know, I've been wrestling with what would it be like if I said to them, I'd like to spend an entire year using the women's Torah commentary. I'm trying to anticipate the response. Why does that feel different somehow from other commentaries as if there's like the whole world of commentary and Midrash and commentators and then there's women. And so that's something that I've been internally wrestling with is, you know, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to present that, how would I do it? And how would it be received? I don't yeah. know. What do you think about that? Is there a particular concern you are thinking through or a particular response you're expecting that you're trying to navigate? I'm wondering if it would be thought as very narrow of all things, as if studying Rashi is not narrow, you know, one one particular dude. Or would it be seen as biased in some way, like we're only hearing women's voices, as opposed to the fact that mm. it's always only been men's voices. So I'm internally wrestling with all of those, I don't know, those dynamics, those voices that we've heard for way too long. Those are such tricky dynamics. I understand why you would be thinking through that. Also, one of the reasons that I sometimes use that particular commentary has nothing to do with the women angle and everything to do with the amazing Parsha outlines at the beginning of each Parsha. Um, And so I wonder if it's helpful to also share with your community as you're having this conversation, the other 
advantages to using that commentary in addition to the women's voice. Yeah, including all the beautiful poetry. Yeah, there's just so much else there. What am I thinking about? I am, this is not the first and probably not the last time that I'll say that I'm thinking about self-care. But in particular, what I'm thinking about right now is sometimes even when we have really good self-care routines and boundaries in place, things just happen or there's extra stuff going on and our regular level of self-care isn't cutting it. And then what do we do? (laughs) You know? So I don't know, Mars, what do you, what do you do in those moments? And maybe we'll ask our guests too, because I'll bet she's got good advice. Yeah, when I go past (laughs) what I usually have in my toolkit of the best things for self-care, like meditating or like doing needlepoint or, I don't know, going to the beach or something. Yeah, if that's still not enough, what do you do? I don't know. I I think think in particular, like in terms of timing, like a lot of us, I think, schedule our self-care in advance because we know we're going to need it. And so we like block in times to do the things that that we know we're going to need to do. Then what happens when those schedules, when we have to deviate from those schedules because of the needs of our community, how do we balance that out? Rabbi Zaymore, what do you think? (laughs) Well, I feel like I am the queen of not good self-care care right now. But I find even if when I really hit kind of rock bottom on the self-care, I find even going to like I've had space on my phone. And even if I do a three to five minute breathing exercise or meditation or something like that, it makes me just reset enough to carry me through whatever moment of intense crisis is going on. And then I can get to that real self-care sometime down the road. That's a helpful reminder. Thank you. The last two years especially have been very intense work-wise for me. And I've found the one time I really can carve out a little slower time is in the morning. So Mm. if I'm not working in a a situation where I need to have nine o'clock meetings, so I I generally don't schedule things before 9.30 or 10, and I can just have that second cup of coffee, listen to the radio or listen to a podcast and not rush. It's such a nice idea to start the day off on the right foot and in a slightly calmer pace. Well, I don't have a baby. <laughs> that's <laughs> my baby's nineteen and off to college, so that's why I can I can carve out that part of the day now. In the old days, I I could not do that at all. Yeah, mine's a dog, but he does need to be walked <laughs> in the morning, which is its own morning obligation. It sure is. Well, we are so honored to speak today to one of our true Gidolot, one of our most significant women rabbis and most significant rabbis in the Reformed Jewish world right now, Rabbi Mary Zaymor. She is the executive director of the Women's Rabbinic Network, an important and meaningful organization for so many of us. And she also has a brand new book out just recently published by the CCAR Press called The Sacred Exchange, Creating a Jewish Money Ethic, which we're looking forward to speaking with her about today. Welcome to Rabbi Mary Zamor. What would you like us to call you during our episode today? How do you like to be referred to? Well, I did note that you're referring to each other by your first names. Thank you for asking 
because not everybody asks. Generally, when I do public presentations, I do want to be called Rabbi Zamor, but since here we're in a more casual format, I'm very happy to be called Mary. I'm not very fond of Rabbi Mary. To me, it makes me sound almost like a nun. Hmm. Um, Mary is, is wonderful. Great. Well, thank you. So, Mary, tell us more about yourself and your story, especially how and why you chose to become a rabbi in the first place. Throughout my entire childhood, I thought I would be a museum curator. It's all I wanted to do. When I was just graduated from high school, waiting to launch into college, that awkward summer in between, I got an internship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I, I was growing up in Long Island, right outside of the city. I had an amazing summer. It was everything I wanted it to be. Interestingly enough, the one thing that bothered me is that they did not place me in a regular department where I would learn from curators or scholars, but rather they put me in publishing, the the department that creates the books, which is ironic because, frankly, I guess they saw in me what I was unable to see in myself, which is that I love writing and editing which has also been a big part of my career. However, that summer, I came to the realization that I um, did not want to work in the museum world. Just right before that summer, that spring, I realized how much I love Judaism for myself. I I came from a very active Jewish family. I didn't do all the normal uh, Jewish camp and Jewish youth grouping that many of our young people do because I was very much into the uh, performing arts and arts. Instead, I had this realization that I just was really into my Judaism separate from my family's identity. Then I ended up in this museum program, enjoyed it immensely, but realized museum work was not for me. It just felt like an ivory tower. And I had met a young man that summer who was another intern, and he had talked quite openly among all our friends about how he wanted to be a priest. And I thought to myself, wow, if he could be a priest, I could be a rabbi. And that set me on my way. I I later found out he became a, a lawyer and got married, but that's uh, for me, that launched the idea for me that I could be a, a religious leader. Wow, it, that, what a great story. <laughs> and it just talks to the idea of Basharat that, you know, maybe he was there in that moment to make sure to plant that seed for you. What are some of the mm. different um, roles and positions that you've had so far in your rabbinic life? Well, I have been a rabbi for 22 years. I started my career here in New Jersey as an intern at the largest congregation in New Jersey, Temple Emmanuel. They then hired me as an assistant rabbi and then associate rabbi. And they actually had term limits for their younger rabbis. They have always had one senior rabbi who stayed as long as possible and then rotated in younger rabbis to keep things, I guess, fresh. At that point, my husband and I were deeply ensconced in the New York area, my my uh, family not far from here, my husband was working in the city, and we decided to stay in the community and be members of the congregation, and, and so we still are, which has worked out wonderfully for us. And I've served congregations in central New Jersey for 18 years, and then four years ago, I had the opportunity, it was just one of those magical moments when Women's Rabbinic Network was in transition because Rabbi Jackie Ellenson, my predecessor and our emerita, was retiring. And it was just, I have to go for this opportunity. I've been an active member since my student days. I had been a 
co-president in 2007-2009. These are issues that I'm passionate about. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do something that will affect many people. And so that was four years ago, and here I am. And we are so lucky that you are. So thank you so much. Mary, can you tell us a little bit more about the Women's Rabbinic Network and its mission and what it does? So we're the organization, really international organization of Reform Women Rabbis, and our members and the segment that we represent have been around since 1972 when Rabbi Sally Presand became the first publicly ordained woman rabbi in the world. Of course, uh, Rabbi Regina Jonas had been privately ordained in 1935 in Germany and, of course, perished in the the Holocaust, very sadly. We have no idea how history would have uh, been changed if she had lived and continued to be a role model to other women. But uh, Rabbi Presan's ordination opened a new chapter for all branches of Judaism. And by the late 70s, Hebrew Union College had a small mass of women who were studying and women who were being ordained. And these women, of course, were facing terrible odds, just both in in their studies and their internships and trying to find jobs. And both in Cincinnati and in New York, they started to gather informally to, uh, to find support with one another and to process what they were experiencing. And this gave birth to our organization, which has had several iterations over the last 40 years, but eventually became the professional organization that we know today. And we have always been true to our roots in that we support and advocate for individuals rabbis. So every single week we get calls from rabbis, our members who are dealing with life's ups and downs and trying to figure out the next step in their careers and how to manage things. And we have conferences and local meetings, but we also do advocacy within the reform movement and beyond. And especially in this uh, last stretch, that's something that we've really dug down on, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to become ED and, and was a big part of the discussion when in my interview process that the role of outward-facing advocacy. And so today we have several projects that we're very proud of. I also want to mention what amazing partners I have in this work. Of course, the foundation that Rabbi Jackie Allenson has has, uh, deeded to us in the 12 years she was executive director, every single president and board member that came before uh, before now. But we have working rabbis, rabbis who have full careers, who are our presidents. We have co-presidents, uh, Kelly Levy and Amy Memis Fowler are our current rabbis, co-presidents. And we have a whole board of working rabbis who are also working board members. They do hands-on work. It's really amazing. It's, it's quite a unique model, and it's quite a deconstructed model in, in a feminist, uh, very consciously feminist way. And so right now we're leading with Rabbi Marla Feldman and the Women of Reform Judaism, a large-scale project for pay equity within the reform movement. All 17 organizations of the reform movement have signed signed on and are active members of this initiative, and it's now in its third year. We are also running a clergy safe employees and employers project, which is bringing anti-harassment trainings to Jewish seminaries, not just our own reform movement, but we're actually at nine different 
Jewish seminary campuses in America. And that's also been a very successful project. We also have an active Instagram account in which we are putting out into the world images of rabbis that look just like us, like women, uh, you know, not the men in, in the black suit with a beard, but really to show the beautiful variety that comes out of the Women's Rabbinic Network of what a rabbi looks like and the different ages and races and uh, types of things we do in our rabbinate. And that's been also really uh, wonderfully embraced, that project. And we're also pretty uh, deep into a family leave initiative also to give guidelines and to promote family leave in not only rabbinic uh, contracts, but anybody who's employed by, by a synagogue or a Jewish institution. Sounds like there's a lot of important things being discussed at the WRN right now. Are there any other hot topic or current areas of focus that we should know about? Well, needless to say, uh, when the Me Too movement hit, it gave an energy and language to issues that frankly, at WRN, we have discussed for four decades. And what we're finding is that many groups beyond our own or even, and even beyond the reform movement are very anxious to hear from us, to get our, our point of view, and to learn from us because we've been navigating these issues for a very long time. And uh, that has been gratifying to be able to share our experience. It's been gratifying to finally get these topics out in the open and to be partners in, in, in leading change. It's been so in inspiring and important when WRN has released statements in support of certain current events or social issues. Um, recently, the We Trust Women statement in relation to all the <laughs> further restrictive bans on reproductive choice and on abortion. And it just makes me so proud to be part of such an influential organization. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, Again, that that is uh, really the leadership of uh, Rabbi Emily Siegel, who is our Vice President of Social Justice and Advocacy in wonderful partnership with Rabbi Rachel Behrman, who is the head of communications, vice president of communications. Then they have a whole team of rabbis who are uh, writing statements, helping us to distribute them in, in meaningful, impactful ways. Again, we, we're really blessed to have amazing leaders. I almost feel like we don't need to ask this question in light of all that you've just shared, but how would you answer someone who says or who asks, we've had women rabbis publicly in the world uh, now for 40 something years. Why do we still need an organization like this? Right. So I get that question all the time. So I'm glad you're asking it because people do think it. And even if they don't have uh, the bravery to ask it to me directly, there there are many people who think it. So what is interesting is is when I took this position four years ago, some of my closest friends, other rabbis, basically put their arm around me and said, are you crazy? You're, you're going to kill your career. It, it, it's done. Like there, there are plenty of women rabbis. These are not issues. What are you all still whining about? Uh, and it wasn't one person. I mean, it was multiple, multiple people who, who did this. And I looked at them and I, I, I just was amazed because our worldviews were so different. I said, are you kidding? 40 years later, and now, of course, today, 47 years later, we're still facing the same 
problems, whether it's about the advancement of women, whether it's uh, the pay gap. You know, I get calls on a regular basis from rabbis who are pregnant and are saying to me that their congregations don't want to give them maternity leave. So, uh, you know, our reproductive rights are under attack in so many states. There are so many issues that affect women rabbis directly and the values we uphold. What I found with the with the wave of the Me Too movement in 2017 is people no longer ask that question. I think that has at least allowed people to see that the issues are still unfortunately quite alive and need attention and that the structural change has not yet happened. At the same time, yes, you know, it's amazing. We have more than 725 women rabbis who have been ordained by our movement. We, you know, there are amazing stained glass ceilings that have been broken and impactful ways that women rabbis are changing both the rabbinate and Judaism and contributing, but the issues are still there. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I have to say, as a as a young woman and as a rabbinical student, I definitely was so naive about the challenges and experiences that I would have as a woman rabbi. And now in the trenches and sort of even even more so now as a first woman rabbi, which I never expected to be. I'm just so appreciative of all the work that that WRN is doing, and, and in particular of the the sort of safe space that WRN creates for us women rabbis to share and support one another. In particular, I'm thinking about the the Facebook group that we have, where sometimes we ask each other for advice, but other times we just sort of share moments of frustration with one another, and it's always just so beautiful to see the way that we're able to hold and, and uplift each other in that space provided by WRN because, um, yeah, these things are happening. And so thank you. Well, thank you. So in addition to um, all of this amazing stuff about WRN, Marcy mentioned your book. So uh, we'd love to hear more about that book and any of your other books that you would like to share with us about. Well, thank you. My first book was The Sacred Table, Creating a Jewish Food Ethic that came out in 2011. It's a beautiful anthology of almost 50 chapters exploring, as I like to say, the buffet of choices of ritual, ethical, and spiritual approaches to food through a Jewish mm-hmm. lens. Some people would say that it is a liberal approach to kashrut, and I would agree with that, but I find when I say kosher and kashrut, people get into such a rigid mindset that it's hard for them to see the broader flexibility from a liberal reform point of view that we bring to that anthology. Yeah. And now, just last month, we released The Sacred Exchange, Creating a Jewish Money Ethic. And again, it's a it's this rich anthology of uh, varied voices and a very horizontal view of our relationship to money. So I, I like to always think about the guiding question for this book as how can Jewish tradition guide the manner in which we interact with each other and the world through money? And again, I, I think in this book we have over 46 chapters of scholars and leaders and thinkers exploring the foundational questions, whether it's the theology, the spirituality of what is wealth, 
is wealth a moral challenge? What does it mean if you have or if you don't have? How does Judaism view these things? Exploration of such rich, interesting text, raising questions that are just about the meaning of life. Then a deep dive into tzedakah and tzedek, into giving money and creating justice in the world through money and economic justice. Then a, a whole part of the book on Israel, because of course, from the Jewish point of view, we should always include a discussion of Israel, but there there are certain laws that tell us we should especially give to support Israel with our money. So exploring that, exploring how the formation and founding of the modern state of Israel was supported by especially North American dollars. And then a chapter about the historic biblical laws around money lending, meaning debt, bankruptcy, and and what it means to give another person money and how that developed from an act of charity to an act of really greasing the gears of the global economy. It's a fascinating chapter. Then we have a part of the book that focuses on employment. Again, many beautiful chapters there. Finally, two more parts to the book. One about religious life and money. Everything from the cost of Jewish living to how money is seen and treated within our liturgy, our rituals, which is raises some interesting questions, this whole part of the book, because we often think about money being on one side and religion being on the other, and they should never mix. But Judaism, of course, has a very practical way to it and brings the material and the spiritual together to make sure that our lives are being guided by ethics and by spirituality and creating lives of meaning. And then finally, the last part of the book is called Difficult Conversations, and just goes through many, many topics, everything from how do you teach money to children, to should we teach financial literacy in synagogues and our Jewish institutions, to the high cost of funerals, many interesting discussions of how you should leave uh, your estate, <laughs> you know, how what ethics and principles should guide that. It's really a, a great anthology with many interesting questions and issues being raised. Wow. Wow, yeah. So it's not just a book about Jewish bankers. No. That's amazing. I, no, although we do have a, you know, a, a chapter about anti-Semitism and money lending, those images. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. just going to ask if that was part of it. That's Yes, yeah. pr- professor at Hebrew Union College, jo- Josh Hollow, uh, wrote that chapter and has some very interesting twists and turns in terms of what he says. You know, I thought it would be railing against anti-Semitism, and of course it does, but what he says in the end is the role of not only Jews, but Christians and Muslims in Europe in the Middle Ages, in money, who all did money lending, helped create the global economy. Hmm. It, wow. It's fascinating. That's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to uh reading it and learning from it I'm just as you're speaking about all the different chapters I was thinking like wow there are so many more ways of approaching the topic of Judaism and money than I would have thought. So that's great. I think that'll be really amazing for lots of lots of people, both as a resource for rabbis and, and for other people as well. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you know, in a, in a kind of meta 
sense, a question for you is uh, in a recent episode, we spoke with Rabbi Leah Berkowitz about her experience of publishing her wonderful children's book, The World Needs Beautiful Things. And as a an editor and a published writer yourself, can you speak at all to the experience of being a, a woman rabbi and writing and publishing and getting your words out there? Yes, I definitely can. First of all, uh, I feel very fortunate that I've worked with Rabbi Hara Person at the CCR Press. Uh, she is the incoming chief executive of the CCR right now, uh, starting in July. And that, of course, has been a wonderful experience working with her and her entire team. But I, what I found is that just as people tend to pigeonhole us, women, that they pigeonhole us um, as I have approached, especially these two books, I've had to have the uphill battle of getting beyond the box that people tried to put me into. So, for instance, with the sacred table, all that people heard was that it was a woman doing a cookbook. Hmm. There's not one recipe in the entire book. It's a philosophical hmm. treatise. It's an exploration, again, about ethics and ritual and spirituality and the meaning of life through the lens of food in this case, and nothing about uh, how to cook something. People literally, years later, come up to me and say, how is your cookbook doing? Wow. Wow, yes. And and of course, men can write cookbooks, women can write cookbooks. But the association with women preparing food and caregiving seems to be so strong that people were incapable, some people and many, many people, frankly, are incapable of of remembering that this book is not a cookbook. Now, doing a book about money has been very interesting because I have found that when, you know, when I said I was doing a book about food, nobody asked me, how did I come to this topic? Nobody mm -hmm. ever asked me, like, why would I do this? A book about money, this is often the first question I get. And it uh. just feels so gendered. People literally stop and say, really? How did you get to that topic? And, and I understand there's a touch about money, so so perhaps that's what I'm hearing. But I do feel there's something quite gendered about it, and I'm proud to say it wasn't the intent when I created and and invited authors to be writers and authors in this book, this anthology. But a good 50%. I, I haven't actually sat down and did the head count, but it's at least 50% of the authors in this book are female, and that's just because I found the top scholars and thinkers, and that's who was among the top scholars and thinkers. 50% or women. And yet this is a topic that people associate with men. Wow. Even reflecting on my own reaction as you were sharing that last piece of information about, about the number of, of women who contributed, calling myself out as you were talking, that that I was surprised by that. And and also I'm sorry that you had that experience with Sacred Table. It's really unfortunate that when we put our work and effort out into the world in ways that shouldn't be gendered. Uh, sometimes they are, and one woman to another, I'm sorry, went through <laughs> that, or that you're still going through that, as the case might be. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us about your books or WRN or anything else that you were hoping to speak about today? Oh, that's a big question. When I look at my rabbinet, you know, to sit with both of you and to talk and reflect on my rabbinet, I would have never imagined life would have taken me to all these places. When we think about rabbi, woman, rabbi, people uh, have a stereotype. Oh, that's so nice. I remember at the beginning of my rabbinate and even today, it's so nice that you're becoming a woman rabbi. 
I'm not becoming a woman rabbi. I became a rabbi, first of all. Mm -hmm. Second of all, oh, you'll be so good with the religious school children. You'll be so good with the the senior citizens. No, men and women equally. People of all genders have different strengths and talents, and that's how they express their rabbinates. I love the fact that my rabbinate has taken me to such interesting, engaging, impactful work in different ways that I could have never imagined. And I just hope that every rabbi of any gender has that blessing. So true. And so I imagine that speaks to a lot of the experiences of other women rabbis. I know I often have to find ways to say to my either my lay leaders or my professional partners in different communities where where I've led, you know, actually, I'm not really interested in running the religious school or, you know, taking on uh, family programming because I don't have a family in that way. And I might not be the best person for it, even though I'm a woman. So yeah, it really can be so challenging. And I think a lot of us can relate. So each episode, we've had a segment called Ask the Rabbi, where we have asked people to submit questions that they've always wanted to ask women rabbis and have never had the chance. And for you, Mary, uh, for you special, we actually wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us what questions should we be asking or should people be asking women rabbis? Is there a question you feel like should be out there or should be addressed to us and our colleagues that perhaps isn't being asked? I think our, our workplaces and our communities can be asking us what opportunities for growth are we hoping to find in the next year, the next three years, the next five years? I think that's a question that, that should be asked and opportunities should be found. I know what questions should not be asked. We should not be asked about our what our partners do. Very frequently I'm asked, and I still, this one I find so curious, is your husband also a rabbi? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, the men are not asked this. You know, is they, they're not asked if their partner and beloved is also a rabbi. So I don't quite understand where that one comes from. Really, I would hope that any question that is asked, that people just stop and just think for a moment, would I ask a man this question? That That is actually what I would love out of, out of the world. Just that moment of checking in with oneself and say, if a woman weren't standing in front of me, would I ask this question the same way or even ask it at all? Uh, because I don't think any of us went into this because we wanted to be women rabbis. We wanted just to be rabbis. And at least from my point of view, that that's my, my goal for each of us. Amen. Amen. That was definitely a big surprise throughout rabbinical school and then into especially the early years of my rabbinate was how much being a woman rabbi <laughs> was a part of my rabbinate. I, I really just wanted to be a rabbi. And so many of the early panels I was asked to be on or programs I was asked to create were related to being specifically a woman. Uh, we look forward to the time when that isn't part of our portfolio. I bet Emma does a lot of that. I do. I was just thinking, like, am I taking us backward a little bit? Because I think there's such a different, so many, I was saying this, I think, also in our episode with Rabbi Berkowitz, so many of the ways in which I'm teaching right now are focused on women rabbis or Judaism through a feminist lens because I'm a 
first and there hasn't been anyone who was able to sort of take that role rabbinically before now. So it feels necessary and important for this community in this moment, but also wishing that it wasn't necessary, how to balance that and keeping, I think, keeping an eye on it, sort of that I need to be mindful of when when do we transition from like, great, we hired a woman rabbi and we're focusing on that for a while. And when do we say, okay, now we don't need to call attention to it anymore. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that now or at some other time, because I think at some point, probably somebody will need to say to me, okay, it's time. It's time to move on. (laughs) My guess is that you probably need to state that part of the growth and development of your community. And at the same time, I love the fact that you're able to turn to your colleagues and say, actually, I don't need to lead every single program that's associated with children and families. And so to try to strike a balance between those two parts of the way you're projecting yourself into your community and how and what they're learning from you. So we have Mary for you now our questionnaire Maher, which is our rapid fire style questions for you. Some of them require more thought than others, but you can answer succinctly if if you want, if you can, but just to go through these. So the first question is, who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? Certainly Rabbi Presand was. When I became a bat mitzvah, I was on the verge of becoming a Hebrew school dropout and did not want to become a bat mitzvah. And then I found out that my Torah portion was the double portion of Tazria Mitzora, which is all about childbirth and leprosy and gross topics. And I literally looked at my poor rabbi and said, no way am I talking about that. And he said, finally throwing up his hands, feel free to talk about anything that is Jewish. My mother had clipped out some article for the New York Times when I wasn't doing the work on my own, put it under my nose and said, maybe you want to talk about this. And it was about the, oh gosh, back then, I guess it was I like the 15th or something anniversary of uh, Sally Presand being ordained. And that's what I spoke about at my bat mitzvah. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yes. I only remembered that like a hundred years later when my mother was packing up all of the stuff in our my childhood home and gave me like the papers from my bat mitzvah that she had saved. And, I, and the speech was in there. I was like, Wow. In light of what you've shared with us about your um, journey towards wanting to be a rabbi and towards the role that you currently play as a rabbi, that uh, I can imagine at that time in your life, you would have never imagined uh, where you would be now. So tell us about a woman that inspires you. It can be Jewish or otherwise. Oh, that is so hard. There are so many amazing women who inspire me. I'm going to go really personal. My best friend, Alana, uh, inspires me. She is just the, the strongest, most amazing, smart woman I know and has just recently had a lot of adversity in her life and every day gets up and faces life and um, just works so hard to make sure her kids are, are safe and happy and have their needs fulfilled. Her parents who need her, her, her special needs brother, and just such, um, such strength. And at the same time is an amazing pediatrician. So that is the woman who inspires me. 
Beautiful. What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? <laughs> well, um, that we're just people. We are people who um, are passionate Jews. Uh, I'm sure this is the same for you. I am a rabbi not because it's my job, but because it is the best outlet for being a passionate, involved Jew. For me, I get to do it all the time. But, you know, uh, sometimes we don't want to go to synagogue. Sometimes we want to collapse on the couch. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we want to run away from it all or just go out and, and have a glass of wine and giggle together. And we're, we are just people with real lives. So true. Favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? Mm. Well, I'm going to say this week, uh, Mayim Bialik on the Big Bang Theory, because uh, she is being so generous and coming to the WRN convention in June because she just wants to support women rabbis. We are so psyched, and I watched the finale of Big Bang Theory last night and just loved every bit of her character and uh, the way she is portrayed Jewish women, especially Orthodox Jewish women in the public space. So, oh, so disappointed not to be able to be there. (laughs) I know, I know. It's going to be amazing. A Jewish text, teaching, or value that inspires you or informs your life? Well, I've been doing a lot of money teaching recently, so I'm going to go with one of my money texts from my book because, of course, we know Pure Avod, Elders of the Father, Ben Zoma talks about who is the one who's content with um, her, his lot, who is wealthy, the one who's content with their lot. And, and this, of course, has to do with the financial dimension. But that whole idea, in fact, the Talmud has a parallel text that asks the same question, who is wealthy? And, and talks about the one who takes, Rabbi Meir gives the answer, the one who's who takes pleasure in their lot. And, you know, I, I take a lot of inspiration from that. I'm very, as you've heard, very, doing a lot, very work-focused. I'm not particularly good about carving out time just to be and to have fun and do more frivolous things lately because my work has been so intense, especially over the last two years. But I do feel so good and so energized, and I know that is a blessing. I am sameach b'chalko. I am happy with my lot. Uh, I hope each person can feel that no matter what their lot is, doesn't mean that it can't be better, but to find the blessings that are there. Yeah, for sure. That's so beautiful. I'm so happy that you're able to proclaim that in that way. It's beautiful. Uh, Last question. What are you thinking about these days? (laughs) I'm thinking a a lot about a lot. Here's, Here's just a small little thread of something I'm struggling with. Here in the States, especially in the Northeast, where there aren't a lot of firsts, there are a lot of women serving as clergy, both as rabbis and cantors, we have, you know, the discussion of what do you do, or is there a moment when there are too many women on the bima, you know, and what do you do about the next hire? Do you, do you say, well, there's a woman senior rabbi, there's a woman cantor, now we're going to hire an assistant rabbi? Do we have to make sure that assistant rabbi is a woman, which is happening in some congregations. Some congregate, you know, again, each community is different. Some are, are like your community, Emma, where, where the first woman is coming, and this is revolutionary. You know, some communities, they look around and they say, wow, we have so many male leaders. This week, I was at a congregation, believe it, in New York City, where they told me that over, um, gosh, it was, it was many, many years, hun- over 100 years, they've only had two female presidents. 
mean, that's that's startling in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, but so they wanted to do promotion of women in leadership, which was good. They were thinking about it. But what do we do when there are a lot of women on the BEMA, a lot of women in leadership? And some people within the community say, that's a good thing. You know, we, we need that. Don't worry about it. And other people say, no, actually, our, our, especially our young boys and, and men need role models who look like them. And I don't know. I keep, I keep oscillating. Uh, I'm the mother of a, you know, I mentioned a 19-year-old son, and I'm glad that he had all sorts of role models. At the same time, things are not yet equal. There's a lot of catching up. It's very much like the question you explored at the beginning, Marcy, about the women's Torah commentary. Is it okay to do this for a year? Is my congregation going to feel comfortable with this? Are they going to feel like it's too much women? Right. You know, the woman rabbi with the women's Torah commentary. It, it kind of makes me wonder, like, when we're we're not going to think about these issues anymore. But that's where my head is. Wow, Ooh. very good question. No simple answers. And, like, great that we're asking that question, even though it's a complicated question. So important that you, particularly in your role and with all of the other amazing women who are part of WRN are thinking ahead almost in that way and sort of wondering about as the pendulum swings, how does that affect us all? Yes. Well, on that profound and important note, we want to thank you, Rabbi Mary Zaymore, for your time, your wisdom, your inspiration, and for all that you do for the Reformed Jewish world, especially those of us who are women rabbis. Mary, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they'd like to? Oh, you can go to womensrabbinicnetwork.org, our, our website, and, uh, and there you'll find the link for reaching me directly. Wonderful. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash womenrabbistalk and Instagram at womenrabbispodcast or by sending us an email at womenrabbispodcast that's womenrabbispodcast at gmail.com or you can even leave us a voicemail with your questions and suggestions at anchor.fm slash womenrabbispodcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and please don't forget to submit your Ask the Rabbi questions. Thanks as well to Seth Lindenman and to John Claude Haynes at C. Robin Tech for their help with sound, tech, and editing. Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available on your favorite podcast platform, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And a big thanks to you, Mercy. Oh, and thanks to you, Emma. And with that, we are out. Lahitraot.
amazing. 